So Dan, I'm kicking myself. The thing that really struck me the first time I opened the book we reviewed last week, which if you didn't tune in was the big short, is a big Tolstoy quote sitting there. Um, and I know how you like your quotes. Yeah, well, I've seen a lot of Tolstoy and Lenin quotes, actually, in, in the last uh, couple of weeks or so, actually. I suppose that probably tells us quite a bit about what part of the cycle we've reached. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think Warren Buffett was first week of March, right? I think Charlie Munger quotes second week of March. Peter Lynch, third week of March. And yeah, now we're well into the Tolstoy, Lenin, Karl Marx quotes. Yeah. Well, who's next week then, Dan? I don't know. Dalai Lama? <laughs> Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So today on Investment Uncut, we welcome special guest Zoe Bordeaux. Zoe is an actuary who works with a lot of our pension clients, but also she did her master's thesis on behavioural biases in pensions. Zoe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dan. So would you like to go ahead and tell the listeners a bit more about what you do and your area of expertise at LCP? Yeah, so my day-to-day is mostly made up with actuarial consulting. That's why I work with trustees and corporates managing their pensions risk, particularly DB pension risk. But I sort of wear several hats at LCP, so I'm really involved in our diversity and inclusion uh, work that we do here. And I also Mm. do quite a bit of work in behavioral Mm. biases, and in particular talking to trustee boards and other boards and groups about groupthink. Okay, cool. We'll get into that in a moment. But first of all, just have to ask you, what's one thing that people won't find on your resume or CV that we should know about you? So to be completely honest, you probably will find this somewhere on my resume, but (laughs) I am actually a classically trained musician. So I play the piano. I was an organist for a while, play the tuba. And now I am the chair of an LGBT plus choir here in London and do some arranging and different work with them. Wow. So you chair it. Does that mean you sing or you... I do both. (laughs) So we are also a charity. And so I, I chair the organization and deal with the logistics of it but I also sit on our music team and do some arranging and singing and dancing and all sorts of things. Well we'll have to put a detail in the show notes of the of that organization for people to follow up on. Fine well today we're talking about groupthink so perhaps you could start by start by talking to the listeners about what groupthink really is and maybe we can talk about some situations where we've all seen it come up. Yeah so groupthink is an interesting concept to talk about because it really is kind of the culmination of a lot of different behavioral biases. So as in individuals, we face all sorts of behavioral biases in, in our day to day. Really? I thought we were like completely rational kind of you know, <laughs> actors who just did everything according to these mathematical formulae and spreadsheets and stuff. Are you yeah. telling you we're biased? Unfortunately not. That's not really the case. Right. A lot of them have a lot of valid bases and talking about survival and sort of we need mental shortcuts to help us make decisions when we don't have full information. But that sort of gets funny when you're talking about investment markets and yeah. decisions about money. So groupthink is kind of all of these individuals have all these biases that they face themselves and then they come together as a group Then you might think, oh, they're going to be really good at making a decision because everybody's coming at a problem from a different point of view, different experiences, but actually we have fallen into this trap of groupthink. And it can mean that we make really kind of irrational decisions as a group and we tend to Mm. overlook really big risks that we should be 
catching. Yeah. And I mean, this is really important, isn't it, in investment? Because a lot of the clients, all the clients really I work with and a lot of investment institutions around the world, they bring together groups of people to make these decisions for exactly that reason, I think, that there's a worry that a single person might somehow do something wrong, but a group is going to be better. That's the assumption, I think. Mm. Yeah, and that can be really dangerous because I think one of the biggest biases that we face is overconfidence. So we tend to really focus on things that reinforce that we're good decision makers and we tend to discount evidence that might say otherwise. And so when you have a group of especially really smart people in a room making decisions about something in their specialist area, you sort of think we're going to be really good at doing this and, and it can be really a dangerous trap to fall into. Yeah, there's a sort of strength in numbers thing, isn't there? Of Well, if all of us think that this is a good idea, it must be but actually, why do all of us individually think it's a good idea? Maybe there's some groupthink going on that leads us to that conclusion. Yeah. And we have groupthink sort of at an individual sort of decision-making group. So if you're talking about a board, and then we can also start talking about industry groupthink. So whether mm. that be amongst advisors, the wider industry, benchmarking, all sorts of things. So groupthink can manifest in lots of ways. So you said a second ago that one of the issues with it is that you can overlook big risks. That sounds like a pretty important thing. So are there any examples that come to mind, not necessarily in finance or maybe not in finance, where that was really apparent and that people can think about? Yeah, one of the ones that comes up a lot in academic literature is the Challenger space shuttle disaster. Right, yeah. So a lot of engineers at NASA were aware of faulty parts sort of before the launch, and they took that to their managers. And one of the things about groupthink is that there's this element of censorship and self-censorship. So overconfidence feeds into that too. So the managers actually did not take that information forward and decided to push on with the launch anyway, sort of as a group. And that's mm. been chalked up to groupthink at play. And when you say it like that, it's really shocking, isn't it? That actually they knew about these faults and they didn't come to light. It can take the form of information being stopped and sort of its way up the chain, mm-hmm. not being progressed, or really just ignoring the magnitude of a risk in general. And that's from the overconfidence, I suppose, is it? So is the suggestion in that case that all these sort of managers were... Be- brought aware of this information but they were just sort of confident that it was okay and all looking at each other who were also confident and that's sort of is that sort of how it happened there's a few elements to it the more people involved in a decision they tend to end up in a more extreme place than they might have been as an individual right okay so if one person says oh i think we're okay and, and feels strongly about that and they're reinforced by someone else who says oh i think it's probably okay. Maybe as an individual, they sort of sit on the fence of whether or not they should take it forward, but vocalize the position that we should not say anything. It's probably okay. By the time that goes through eight or 10 people in a group, you have people self-censoring and not really sharing their real opinion on it, appearing pretty overconfident in what they're saying. Collectively as a group, you end up in a position where the group as a whole is very confident that everything is totally okay. And you can see how that can snowball quickly. So I guess when you've got really big groups, what you just described there sounded a bit like Chinese whispers, where the first person says something really quite balanced, and then the next person uses sort of confirmation bias to hear the bits that they wanted to hear, pass on a very slightly different message. Are there studies that show a difference in size of group and the prevalence of groupthink? Definitely. Unfortunately, there's no right answer. It depends what you're discussing, what the context is. Yeah. But in general, the bigger the group, the more people self-censor and the more overconfident that group becomes. If you're sort of too small, then you don't really have the range of experiences, the diversity of thought and cognitive approach to problem solving and decision making. But the bigger you get, you do have this element of 
self-censorship in particular that comes up. I remember reading a blog that was saying that there's a rule, apparently the rule at Amazon is that in any given group setting, there has to be the right number of people there so that two pizzas could feed all of them. Sort of a, rule to, a rule of thumb to stop there being too many people there. But that sounds, Surely that depends how greedy they are as well. Then. I guess so. I suppose that's saying maybe about, what, eight or ten people, something like that is probably where that's coming to. And I mean, how big, how big, Mary, are the sort of trustee boards and decision-making boards that you tend to work with, would you say, in, in investment? That's a really interesting question because I actually think typically smaller pension schemes that I work with have smaller groups of trustee yeah. boards, less people involved bigger schemes, more assets to manage, have bigger numbers of people. But actually, the investment decisions they're needing to make aren't necessarily bigger or smaller because of the size of the assets. So I think the sort of typical range I see is between sort of in the extreme one person, but where there's a group, three people to maybe 10. To be honest, I think 10's maybe pushing it towards the sort of high side. You end up not hearing every voice in the room. And I notice that when I'm giving advice. Well, this is the point I think Zoe's making, isn't it, about self-censorship. That basically Mm. is a way of saying people just don't say what they're sat there thinking which matters because it might be it might be important and I guess that gets harder and harder with bigger size of the group does seniority come into it in some way as well Zoe in terms of how people interact yeah and particularly I think seniority is is an aspect but it's probably more about the personalities and character traits of the people in the room. When we talk about dominant personalities, people who tend to speak out quickly and with a strong opinion. Um, yeah, I'm sure we can all think of people like that, right? I Absolutely. mean, it's kind of yeah. pretty, pretty, pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> we have this concept of anchoring. Once one person says something, that kind of anchors the starting point for yeah. everyone else in the room. Mm. I think that also censorship, and that can either take the form of self-censorship, where people sort of aren't speaking up and saying what they think or concerns they have or risks that they've identified. You also have this concept of censorship, sort of enforced censorship, whether that's peer pressure or people being shot down when they do speak up. Yeah. And that's really interesting, actually, because I've had a a number of conversations over the years with colleagues saying, oh, there's that really difficult person in this group that always asks that question you're not expecting. I actually really enjoy those meetings because it really keeps me on my toes and I feel like I'm actually giving proper advice and being challenged as I should be. But I guess you probably see in bigger groups that you end up with the kind of even a subgroup of the people in making the decision think that's that awkward person. We're not really going to listen to the points that they're making. Is that presumably as part of this group thing problem? It's like I planted your question. (laughs) One of the other really prevalent symptoms of groupthink, one of the ways that you can identify that it's happening is this concept of scapegoating. So you dismiss Mm. someone's opinion or censor them because you have scapegoated them. Mm. So you might have, let's say, on a pensions trustee board, that one trustee who just doesn't understand how bonds work, for example. So Mm -hmm. anytime they raise a risk about any decision to do with bonds, they're immediately dismissed and the group discounts their opinion. And I guess keeping it with sort of an investment focus, are there any of these risks that you think are more prevalent in investment decision making than some other decision sort of decision points? I don't think there's a risk necessarily that is higher with investment decisions, but I think the complexity of investment decisions means that groupthink is more likely to occur. As soon as you have a large discrepancy in knowledge amongst a group of people making a decision, that really can lead the group to fall into the trap of groupthink because you have lack of confidence of individuals and you have a lot of other sort of individual biases going on as Mm. soon as you have really complex decisions that need to be made. Right. The other thing is the higher the pound amount on it, the more risk or the more impact a decision is seen to to have, uh, Mm. the more of a risk of groupthink and other behavioral biases 
creeping in. Yeah, I mean, I suppose one ways I've seen it creep in with groups and with clients, one of them is being too anchored to the status quo. Mm. So always sort of talking themselves into staying where they are rather than making a change. So you might, I suppose you might say that's being too conservative and too anchored. But then I guess you, on the other end of the scale, you can also say it could be a risk to jump in and take too much risk the other way and to go into a strategy or an, or an idea or an approach that mm. takes a lot of risk. So it's funny, in some cases it might be too conservative, in other cases it might be taking too much risk. Yeah, and I guess there is often, we talk about the concept of herding and we are advisors and you know LCP as a house doesn't have a house view, so we, each of our partners can give different advice, but inevitably we have conversations with colleagues and there will be consistency between the advice that we give. Does that mean all of our clients do the same thing and do we then cause issues in financial markets as an industry because everyone is moving in the same direction? That's an interesting point. My view on herding, for what it's worth, is that it's sort of a thing that people are always scared of, but it's very hard to get your head around the sheer size of financial markets. And Mm. the actual weight needed to make that happen is probably bigger than than a lot of people think. But I suppose that is one area that could be missed, right, in in terms of groupthink. So, Zoe, this is obviously something that could be very, very dangerous in a number of different sort of scenarios. How do we fix this? What can we do? What can people do? I wish I had the silver bullet to make groupthink go away. I think that probably the biggest thing is being aware of it. Mm. And groups that are talking about these things, identifying it as a risk, maybe if they have a risk register, putting it on there, acknowledging the impact that it can have, and identifying sort of mitigating activities that they can do as a group that are specific to that group and how they work Mm. is really important. So sort of a bit of take a step back, navel gazing, how do we work as a group? What traps could we be falling into specifically based on who's around the room? Yeah, I think it's also about really being self-critical. That's something that we're not very good at either as individuals or Mm. is to be really Mm. self-critical. So having a third party in the room to be a little bit more objective is important. Mm. It's really hard for us to be critical of of our own decision-making abilities because of that Mm. um, confirmation bias and how strong that is. Yes, there's a bit of value there in sort of exposing yourself to kind of radically different views and just getting, however painful it might be, getting someone to come in and say something you really disagree with just to kind of disrupt that dynamic maybe a little bit? Is that is that one thing that you might suggest? Yeah, and there are a lot of techniques that you can use, things like the Delphi technique where you... What's that? The Delphi technique where you, in its sort of ideal form, everything is done anonymously and everyone contributes anonymously and then gets to feedback anonymously. Things like that don't necessarily work in their ideal form practically in decision-making group, especially groups that have to make decisions quickly about things maybe in the same day or in in a couple of days Mm. but you can take aspects of those kind of techniques and look at things like ipad polling individual contributions making sure that the chair or leader of a group isn't sharing their opinion first Mm. going around the room a lot of really simple things that are really easy to implement that can have a really large impact and what about things like devil's advocate because that's something that sort of is used quite often i think but i don't always find it that effective? I don't know. What do you think about that? I think devil's advocate can be a great thing if it's done right. Right. (laughs) As with everything. (laughs) Um, Because we have this scapegoating that happens. If you're devil's advocate that you've appointed to challenge a decision, be really risk focused, that can sometimes backfire. Because if you're scapegoating that devil's advocate, you're discounting their opinion. Yeah, if it's always the same person, you're sort of rolling your eyes on you as soon as they're saying it. I've definitely been there where like, oh God, there's there's another devil's advocate one here. It's kind of, like you say, and it's just discounted from the Mm. start. Although 
I guess, yeah, turning that round, I completely agree that if it's always the same person, you're likely to end up scapegoating them. But telling someone they have to be devil's advocate gives mm. them permission to think differently, I guess, is why it's helpful in group situations. The more credibility the devil's advocate has, the more the risks that they raise will be considered. Mm. Even if the group knows that they're doing it sort of to be that devil's advocate, it means that their arguments are seen as valid and, and the right. group will still consider what they say. So does that mean that there's actually a tactic to deciding who gets appointed as devil's advocate in this example? Would you kind of look at a group and think, I've observed you as a group and this person has quite a lot of authority within the group, so I'm going to appoint them the devil's advocate rather than letting people get anchored to their decision? Actually, you're telling them they have to be the person thinking differently when maybe they they usually lead the group. Absolutely. I think that a chair of a group being a devil's advocate works well. I also Mm. think that advisors work well, particularly when they might be there as an observer in a different context. So if you have a legal advisor who might be observing a non-legal discussion or session Mm. that you're having, because they have a lot of credibility in that space as an advisor, particularly as a paid advisor, giving them that role can be really useful. And I guess then you just need to make sure everyone knows that that's the role you've given them so that the advisors don't fall out with each other. I think so. What about the question of time here? Because I suppose an ideal world where we had days and days to make every single decision, we could go through all these different sort of approaches and, and ways of getting around it. But in, in practice, it would just be there forever, wouldn't we? If in every single decision we, we went through all these processes. I mean, that's the issue, isn't it? Time is a big one. The problem with time pressure decisions is that they're the ones that do tend to rely on our biases to make. So the quicker we have to make a decision, the more we sort of use that gut instinct and we start mm. using mental shortcuts to make decisions instead of all the information that we have at hand. Right. So in some ways, yes, it's more difficult when you have a time pressure decision to implement some of these techniques. But on the other hand, that's really when it matters and we are at most risk of groupthink mm. and behavioral biases. Yeah, I mean, I guess where I've seen that play out most in investments is often terminating a manager particularly mm. if it's a period of underperformance yeah. where there's a sense that there might be a bit of time pressure around it, especially if there's been a particular event, say a team or a manager has left and there's a worry that things could get worse. I guess that's where you've got the time pressure and the yeah. huge amount of these biases come into play because you've got sort of anchoring, people taking various views and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I guess where the way I've tried to combat that with some groups is we know we're going to struggle to make this decision in the moment, but mm. can we pre-plan metrics that we're now monitoring and then the tricky thing then is to stick to them so we think this is a key man in this with this portfolio if that person leaves we will exit the fund you still end up making a snap decision at that point but if you've preset if this person leaves and some of the team leave yep. and performances like this and you probably have to have a variety of metric because clearly the success of any investment isn't usually just one factor but maybe that's a way of getting around the fact that you know you might have biases when yeah. you make quick decisions. Yeah, definitely. That's exactly what I've seen sort of work there as well. And I suppose we're talking a little bit in terms of needing to have like a hierarchy of decisions, needing to know what the really big ones are, where you need to spend the time on these areas or sort of mm. risky decisions and then other sort of simpler ones, maybe maybe not. Absolutely. Mm. Contingency plans can be really important to implement in, in a variety of, of scenarios. Mm. I think the one that just spoken about is a really good example of that. One of the things is that we don't like to be seen to waste time or money. So if we are sort of raising a risk or speaking up about something that might put us at risk of being seen to waste resources, for example, Mm. or be upsetting the status quo. Actually, if we've agreed a contingency plan from day one, we're sort of just veering to other pre-agreed 
course, which makes that much easier to move to as opposed to feel like we're starting over at, uh, at yeah. square one. Mm. Coming back to the, when you're making time critical decisions, you can't necessarily follow the, was it the Delphi technique that you mentioned where you anonymously vote on things like that? I've had a couple of times where, so sometimes we use iPads and we do anonymous voting with trustee boards and I find it's really, really effective. I've had other cases where someone said, I don't think we really need to do that with this group because they're all quite vocal. I'm guessing that that just feeds straight into the trap of groupthink, but it's just a different type of groupthink that's applying. Everyone's happy to, to speak out, but maybe they are maybe they're all very like-minded and actually you end up with sort of herding for that reason anchoring scapegoating because no one's that scapegoat but actually you're no better sort of off in the first place. yeah i haven't come across that many groups where everyone's happy speaking out they might think they are but in reality it's usually a small number and then mm. the other ones are interplaying that role of like well yes he's the noisy confident one i'm the sort of less quiet one and yeah so yeah i agree i think the i'm a big fan of the anonymous polling as well so i can get you quite far That's also one where you're at big risk of group polarization. So if you have a really vocal group and and people tend to have strong opinions, but on the same side of things, you can end Mm. up accidentally in a much more extreme position than you would be otherwise. Right. Yeah. And there are some studies around that, aren't there? I think around political orientation, you get certain groups of people on one side of the political spectrum or the other and you can actually find that the group ends up in a more extreme, taking a more extreme view on an issue than, than maybe anyone in the group actually would, which is really quite surprised finding really and scary yeah Yeah. they've done a lot of studies on mock juries in the u.s and about awarding penalties and prison sentences Uh, and they found exactly the same thing where juries when they've discussed something as a group will award penalties or jail time that are much more extreme than anyone went in with as an idea before they had those group conversations right wow And I guess when we're talking about groups and maybe where there is people that are quite dominant but perhaps have similar views, I guess I can't help but come back to diversity. When you're talking about groupthink, I guess one defence against some of the challenges of groupthink is to have a very diverse group of people and to empower them to be able to express their differing sort of decisions and views. Yeah, that empowerment point is key because the last thing you want is to have people scapegoated and have individuals essentially acting as sort of a litmus test for an entire community or or population. Diversity is incredibly important when we're talking about good decision-making. There's been studies and so forth that sort of bear that out. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of across the board when you're looking at effective decision-making, when you're looking at outcomes, when you're looking at individual decisions, company output, all sorts of things. I guess at the heart of it, is that because... People have just got a different set of, they've got their own different set of biases and experiences and ways of coming at things. And you need those different things. Whereas if you're undiverse, then a lot of those line up across the group. Is that the- yeah, we talk a lot about cognitive diversity, which is important. So people approaching issues from different perspectives, having different experiences, maybe someone who thinks more creatively, someone who thinks more analytically, bringing all of those different views to the table. It's really important to remember that it is a key aspect of cognitive diversity to have, have different lived experiences. And that's not something mm. uh, that can really be achieved without different experiences and backgrounds. Yeah, and that's super interesting. I mean, one thing that I've read and I feel I've experienced in practice as well is that with these diverse groups, there's evidence they make better decisions, but suffer more conflict in doing so and end up less confident in their outcomes compared to an undiverse group, which I think is really difficult because it's important to know that if you're in a a situation where the decision feels really hard and there's a lot of conflict, it might actually be a good thing. Mm. Whereas if you're in a situation where you're feeling very confident and you're all agreeing, then that might be a bit of a flag for a bad thing, right? Which is quite kind of difficult to do in practice. 
Yeah, and it doesn't stop feeling uncomfortable because if you're yeah, in that diverse exactly. group, every decision feels slightly difficult. And if you're in an undiverse group, group think comes in and you have confirmation bias and things like that saying, we're really confident in this decision. And then you make it the right decision to have made based on how things play out. So it's, yeah, I guess, interesting message, I guess, to the audience is almost the less comfortable it's feeling potentially, the more balanced the decision making yeah. process and the better outcome. And, and when we're talking about investing, as many of our clients do on behalf of large groups of people really affecting their future, I guess it's very important to come back to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, that's been really interesting, Zoe. As we're winding up, then just a few questions to finish off. So how can our listeners contact you or find your staff and find things that you've written? Yeah, so I'm on LCP's website. You, you can find me there. I'm also on LinkedIn. Great. And do you have any recommendations for listeners, books, articles, podcasts, movies? It doesn't have to be investment focused. <laughs> yeah, I spend a lot of time commuting, so I'm a fan of podcasts myself. I would definitely recommend Hidden Brain. That is an NPR podcast that Shankar Vedantan does on behavioral biases. And there's some really, really interesting things there. There's a couple episodes on investment in particular. So it's an interesting one. Nice. I'll take a listen. Okay, fine. So next we have our quick fire round. So I'm (laughs) going to give you a series of choices between two things. And in each case, the question is, which of them do you back for the next decade? And of course, we won't hold you to them at all, but maybe we kind of will. (laughs) So first up, behavioral science versus computer science in terms of a degree. As a degree? Yeah. I think we need a balance of both. I'll let you get away with that just about. Bitcoin versus gold? Neither. Facebook or Twitter? You've got to get off the fence on this one. Yeah. Ah, Yeah, I think neither again. I think that we're going to end up somewhere else. Okay. You're a bit of a contrarian, I can see. I am. Email or instant messaging? Instant messaging. Okay. Got you off the fence there. That's good. (laughs) Books or podcasts? I love books, but I think podcasts is where we're headed. Okay, cool. And finally, AI, threat or opportunity? Absolutely both. Final question from me. What do you think is the most underappreciated thing in investing? I would say the paradox of choice. There's an American psychologist, Barry Schwartz, who has written a book on this. It's his theory. And Our happiness and sort of our utility, if you want to say, is really affected by our success or failure in terms of our own goal achievement. So I think that it's really important to think about how we set our goals. So Mm -hmm. if that's a benchmark and we have hundreds of Mm. choices available to us, actually, we're never going to be happy. (laughs) (laughs) So even if we have, let's say, a very well-performing asset or investment that we've made, but there's still one in that sort of 200 choices that we made originally that has outperformed us, we're still unhappy with that decision. So actually acknowledging that sometimes less choice doesn't necessarily decrease our autonomy or our freedom of choice, but actually sort of empowers us to look at our own needs. What are our own goals? What do we need out of this investment? As opposed to how are we doing compared to someone else or compared to a benchmark? Yeah. Okay, really interesting note to finish on. Well, Zoe, thank you so much for your time. It's Mm. been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, very, very refreshing. Thanks. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.